Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. David Abrams, the executive director of the Stephen A. Schroeder National Institute for Tobacco Research and Policy Studies at the American Legacy Foundation in Washington, D.C., Dr. Abrams, prior to joining the American Legacy Foundation, was the director of the Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research at the National Institutes of Health, and prior to that spent 20 years as a faculty member at the Brown University Medical School and uh, has been a distinguished scholar in the area of addiction with tobacco in particular at the center of his research program. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Nice to have you here. So let's talk now about similarities between tobacco and food and the history of the tobacco wars that might apply in the food area. Um, There are some people in our field, in the nutrition and obesity field, who believe that the experience uh, learned from tobacco is not terribly relevant, that the industries are different. With tobacco, there was basically one product and a half dozen companies that sold it, more or less. And in food, there are thousands of products, hundreds of companies selling them. Um, you don't have to smoke to survive, but you do have to eat to survive. And so they sort of dismiss the relevance of the tobacco history. I don't count myself among that group and believe that there's an awful lot that can be learned from the tobacco wars and from the nation's push to reduce the prevalence of smoking. So I'd like to talk about some of these parallels. So let's begin with the following. Um, there, I know there was a time when there was more focus in the tobacco field on treatment, that is smoking cessation, than there was on prevention and public health approaches that might reduce prevalence looking more upstream. Um, And the same thing has been true in the obesity field where for many years we were focused on treatment, genetic discoveries, pharmacology, et cetera. But that's beginning to change. So do you see a parallel there? Um, Yes, I do. I think we've begun to realize that although we do need individual approaches and powerful treatments are very helpful, um, the issue of relapse and maintenance of behavior change is something we share, I think, in the obesity area and the smoking area where it's very hard for people to maintain and sustain long-term gains even if they're able to make short-term change. And one of the things we've learned about that is that it's the environment, the social support, and restructuring the way one lives one's life that is required to maintain healthy habits. It can't just be done at the individual level uh, based on, let's say, even the most powerful treatment that we have available. If one looks back at the tobacco history, there are a lot of things that are now just part of everyday background, but at one point were not, such as taxes on cigarettes, uh, clean indoor air acts that would forbid people from smoking and in buildings or in public places, um, labeling, warning labels on cigarettes and things like that. What sort of impact have those had on national prevalence of smoking? Um, there have been a mixed impact, really. I think some of the things like tax disincentives have actually been quite powerful. And we do have fairly strong evidence that tax incentives have reduced the number of kids that start smoking, as well as encouraged adults uh, to at least reduce their smoking, if, least at, if, if not consider quitting. 
Um, however, things like warning labels are a little more controversial. Um, there's actually some recent evidence from marketing and neuroscience suggesting that warning labels um, have a bit of a mixed effect. They may, in fact, stimulate the brain to think about the temptation to smoke as much as they discourage it. So uh, I think we need to learn a whole lot more from neuroscience about how both fears and warning labels impact behavior and how there may be uh, uh, consequences of warning labels that aren't exactly what we hope they would be. The other uh, issue I mentioned, the clean indoor air acts and forbidding smoking in some public places and things, um, is it known how what kind of impact those things have had? Um, in general, they've had a modest good impact. Uh, it's clear that um, they've reduced secondhand smoke and other hazards from secondhand smoke in places like the workplace. Certainly amount, among kids, they've encouraged parents not to smoke in front of their kids or not, not to smoke in homes. And we have fairly strong evidence that about 40% of childhood asthma would go away if kids uh, were not exposed to secondhand smoke in their parents' homes or in cars, for example. So I think in general, the idea of reducing exposure to secondhand smoke, whether it's in the workplace or other public places, in airlines, in bars, and at home, has had a dramatic effect on improving health outcomes, but also in terms of role modeling. Um, it means that you see less people smoking, and that I think discourages or doesn't create an incentive for others to start smoking, uh, may even get people who are smoking to feel they're a little more in the out group and maybe they should quit. So I think it has a number of very beneficial effects on, on the overall behavior of reducing smoking. It strikes me that this is one area where the parallels to the obesity and nutrition field are quite clear. So for example, if tobacco taxes have had a big impact because rising prices discourage use, there would be every reason to believe the same uh, sort of set of principles should apply in food. Now, we may not; they may not have the same exact price elasticities, and the economics might be slightly different, but overall the principles should apply. And if we think about the Clean Indoor Air Acts, which basically restricts access to tobacco because you can't smoke in these places, whether things like having junk food-free workplaces uh, would be a relevant parallel. So it seems to me there's an awful lot to be learned here. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I think the, we've learned a lot from the issue of cues in the environment. And, um, you know, we tend to be tempted with things that we see or smell. Um, and so if you have an environment where, say, the cafeteria in the workplace has lots of healthy food choices and few of the unhealthy food choices, it definitely would encourage healthy eating habits, or if the workplace had an easy way to, for example, go outside and exercise during a work break instead of going to take a smoke break, um, that clearly encourages healthy behaviors. So I think, again, there are parallels and there are common principles of behavioral science that can apply to both um, eating and exercise behavior as well as smoking, even though one is trying to stop uh, a habit that, that you um, uh, have a hard time stopping, like smoking, and the other is to perhaps eat more healthy food or exercise more. There are still some common principles in behavioral science. Let's talk for a moment about parallels in the behavior of the industry players, tobacco and food. So one thing that uh, the food industry is doing now, they're doing a number of things, but among them are reformulating their products, some products at least, to create, quote, healthier versions of them. 
So potato chips might be baked instead of fried, let's say, or fiber might be put in some otherwise sugared cereal. And the, um, the, the people who are in favor of this will give the industry the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, they're making good faith efforts to make their products better. Critics of this will say, no, they're just trying to fight off government regulation by looking like they're doing good things when they're not really. And I was wondering what sort of um, parallels there might have been in tobacco, the introduction of safer products or healthier products along the way. Yeah, I think we've learned some very hard lessons in tobacco in that respect. Um, you know, the introduction of so-called low-tar, low-nicotine cigarettes or the attempt to introduce filters and the implication that that reduces the health risks have in fact come back to bite us in some very unfortunate ways. For example, particularly among women smokers, where if you remember the campaigns in the 60s or 70s that implied that light cigarettes were, um, you know, more healthy and less risky, um, we now find 20 years later that women are getting more adenocarcinoma, which is a particularly difficult to treat lung cancer. And we're also finding that the cancers are appearing deeper in their lungs because in introducing filters and low-tar, low-nicotine cigarettes, it turns out that people were sucking deeper to get the nicotine. And so while it appeared on the surface that they were being protected, in reality they were actually being exposed to more of the harmful carcinogens in burnt tobacco smoke in their attempt to get more nicotine out of a low nicotine, low tar cigarette. I don't know that there's an answer to this, but is there evidence that the industry knew this? Um, I'm not sure that there, there was strong evidence that they knew at the time because it does take 5 or 10 or 20 years to see those downstream consequences. But certainly I think over the years the, uh, the attempts of the industry to preempt government control or to in fact go along with government control like warning labels on cigarettes, which in fact in the end protected them from lawsuits because they could then turn around and say, well, this is an individual freedom of choice. They knew exactly because of the warning label what they were getting into and they still chose to smoke. Therefore, you can't hold us liable. So in some senses, we have to be very careful about how industry might behave and look like they are, um, you know, in a sense, protecting the public or on the same page as regulators or, or legislators. So to the extent that the tobacco industry applies to what's happening with food now, and people debate the relevance, but let's just say to the extent it is relevant, it sounds like there's every reason to be skeptical of things that the industry agrees to or to uh, wonder about the overall impact on public health of changes they make that are cast as being healthy changes. Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, I think what generally happens is that um, people will tinker around the edges but not make a fundamental change in everything they're doing. So, for example, you know, an industry might introduce healthy salads as part of their choice, but in fact, they know that 90% of the product that they were selling is still going to be sold just the way it was. So in fact, it's an attempt to maintain their current market share 
and it's a bit of a distraction. Um, so unfortunately, you're still exposing most of the population to the unhealthy food in exactly the same way, while looking on the surface as though you're being altruistic and providing additional choices. Right. So it's hard to, to take the food industry and to read their minds or to exactly know their motives. But given the tobacco history, it sounds like there's reason to be cautious, at least, and to make sure that changes industry makes are evaluated, tested, and industries held accountable for doing better things if they actually claim to be. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. That makes sense. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been a very instructive discussion. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Our guest today was Dr. David Abrams from the American Legacy Foundation in Washington, D.C. I invite you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org to see a list of a variety of resources, including a list of the excellent podcasts that we've recorded with other guests. Thank you.